Would you please join me in Hebrews chapter 3? If you have your Bible, Hebrews chapter 3. And um, I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 to set our understanding and our readiness to grow in the Word. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, this is the Word of the Lord. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been counted worthy of more than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my heart, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. As I started writing this sermon two weeks ago, I, I don't know exactly why, but the children's animated cartoon Frozen came to mind. The opening song of the first of the movies is my favorite one. You know which one it is? Beware of the frozen heart. The men, the baritone voices, singing as they carve out the ice for the icebox. Singing this. Split the ice apart and break the frozen heart. Stronger than one, stronger than ten, stronger than a hundred men. It's a frozen heart. Worth mining. Strike for love and strike for fear. Split the ice apart. Beware of the frozen heart. Now... The young people, probably the young ladies, just found me to be the most relevant they have ever experienced. <laughs> but as I read this section, especially verse 12, take care lest there be in you an unbelieving heart. I thought about 
the condition of the heart as it's expressed in that song and that particular animated cartoon. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The title for my sermon is Beware of a Hard Heart. And it is, without doubt, a warning. The warning starts here. And it's going to go all the way through chapter 4 and verse 13. By the way, there are six difficult warning passages in the book of Hebrews. They give us a sense of the theme of Hebrews. Do not fall away from Christ. Christ is better. Don't, in this case, repeat the mistake that was made of that generation during the Exodus. Before getting into what mistake was made and how we are to heed the warning not to repeat it, let me draw your attention to the high view of Scripture that the author of Hebrews has. You know, you've seen this pattern. We come to an argument in the book of Hebrews and we find the author pointing our attention back into the Old Testament. The author is totally convinced that what had been given to us, the testament of the Old Testament, is a testament to true faith in Christ alone. So over and over, we're reading these Old Testament citations. Today is the same. But then also, would you notice, right away in verse number 7, the author magnifies the authority of Scripture by calling on its true author. The author says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit said. I want you to know that, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, is a present tense verb. It is the Spirit of God who says in the present. Well, whose presence? Well, the presence of the Exodus. Also, it's present in the warning from Psalm 95, as this, the quote from Psalm 95, verse 7 and 8. The psalmist shows, it is still true that the Spirit proclaims, as the author of Hebrews wrote, it is yet true that the Spirit says, and as we handle this text today, the same words apply 2,000 years later. The Spirit says, today... If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Last week, Pastor Will faithfully taught us from the first six verses. That previous passage includes a key to understanding all of the warning texts. Look at verse number six. Here is a key to understanding some difficult warning texts. We are God's house if... Indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. We know the condition of our faith if during the presence of trial we hold fast. Today, then, the author continues that theme by illustrating it. You know that you are the house of God if in the moment of trial, you endure. 
if yours is not a perpetual condition of unbelief in trial, then you know you're the house of God. How do we know? Because we have this example from the Spirit's testifying about the Exodus. The author illustrates what it means to not endure, not hold fast. He refers to the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where the fathers put God to the test and saw the testimony of God, saw the work of God. So, a question that has to be answered at the outset of the sermon is, what was the failure in the wilderness? What was the failure in the wilderness? It was the failure of persevering faith or unbelief in the presence of hardship that was a heart condition proved by testing. So what, what I want to show you today is from these verses, the Spirit of God gives us these cross-references to illustrate the warning we should be aware of. Avoid. Don't repeat what they did. And I, I want to lay it out for you in two parts. One is we see the Israelite people in the Exodus proving God, testing God. And then secondly, just from verse 12, I want to encourage you that it is Christ who will prove his people. Okay? So what we have is the people proving God, and then we want to see Christ proving his people. Let's pray, okay? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its activity. Thank you that it is delivered to us not by the, the cunning wisdom of men, but it is truly the word of your spirit saying presently to us now, beware lest we have the unbelieving heart and hold fast to the true assurance of our faith, which is Christ. Thank you for the testimony of him. I pray that when we have heard it, when it is exposed to our hearts, that we would conclude with a firmer, more concluded conviction that Christ alone is our hope in life and death. In Jesus' name, amen. So, if we're going to go through those two points, okay? Christ proves his people, and Israel proves God. Let's start with the first one. Israel proves God. Israel proves God, verse 7 through 11. The author starts with, therefore, tying it back to what Pastor Will taught us last week, and quoting from Psalm 95, 7. Listen as I read. For he is our God. We are the people of his pasture the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as, in, as at Meribah or in the day of Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my works, for 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart 
They've not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath they will not enter my rest. The psalmist begins with a call for joyful thanksgiving to God for his saving work. For he is God. We are his people. We are the sheep of his hand. So drawing attention to all that we have to be thankful to God for. The Lord should be thanked and should be praised. God's lordship over all is evident here. However, we know from places like Numbers 13 and 14 that the wilderness generation provoked the Lord through their doubting in the face of trial. They made it clear that theirs were unbelieving hearts. So, listen to the scenario from the book of Exodus chapter 16. Now, let me, let me remind you, God hears their cries, sends his ambassador to Pharaoh to rescue the people from slavery in Egypt, brings them out, shows the work of his hands mightily in front of the people, they sing the song of Moses. And then Exodus chapter 16, verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled. Hmm. He is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. And the whole congregation of the people grumbled. Look at verse 9, Hebrews chapter 3. The wilderness generation tested God, instead of trusting God, instead of believing God, they became convinced that he would fail them. Yes, we saw what he did then, but how can we possibly have confidence that he'll do that again now? That seems like a legitimate question, doesn't it? Sure, I know what God did then, but I... I don't know what he's going to do next. How am I to predict the actions of God? Look at verse 10. As a consequence of their doubting him, therefore, God was angry with them. Now, it is essential that you see the quality of their unbelief. In verse 10, they always go astray in their heart. Friend, you have to understand that if you're to see what their testing proves true about God. If you don't see that, you'll leave here thinking, I'm pretty much in the same boat. Because, brother or sister in Christ, your faith is far from flawless, isn't it? Oh, the days, the days upon days when you doubt. When you're derailed by uncertainties in your circumstance and you so slowly turn your attention to his steadfastness, but rather you're almost consumed by the negative circumstance. So I want you to be assured 
We are not today comparing your moments of immature faith with what is said here about the people. They always go astray in their hearts. Many of us would pray, Father, I believe, please help my unbelief. They always go astray. Doubt in the face of testing characterized them. It's not something they did and were cast out. It's who they were. They were characterized as doubters, as unbelievers. They knew as well as anyone what God could do. But they didn't know God. See, if I say to you, church, do you see the mighty work of God? Yes, I see what he has done. What will he do next? The church says, more of the same. His characteristics are consistent. He is faithful and true. He does as he promises. That's the church's confession. We see what God has done and by his character revealed to us, we anticipate what he will do in faith. Look at verse 11. This was not the case for them. They always go astray in their hearts. They do not believe. So in verse 11, God swore with an oath. They would not enter into his rest. What is the rest? It's the land of promise. To Israel, it's the fulfillment of the covenant enacted to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The fulfillment of, finally, a home for us, where we can rest. Numbers chapter 14, verse 30, quotes God as saying, I swear that none of you will enter the land of promise to settle in it. The promised land of God's rest would not be enjoyed by faithless, hard-hearted unbelievers. God had been proven. What will God do with those who do not believe Him? He will forever prohibit them from entering into His rest. God had been proven by the people. We are coming up to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse number 6 tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God. God had been proven. So what of us? If this unbelieving people who were so particular in God's revelation are not to enter into rest, then what hope do any of us have? Look at verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. See what happens to a religious people who had in them an evil heart of unbelief and fell away from God. Now, 
take care lest you do the same. That's frightening. It's the nature of a warning. Our heads rise. The hair in the back of our neck stands up and we go, wait, what? We might do the same? We might hear God say, I will never allow you into my rest. Hmm. Before we talk about what is unfamiliar to the Exodus experience and our experience, let's talk first about what is familiar. First of all, it is not at all unusual that the author of Hebrews likens the Christian faith to the Exodus. It's not unusual at all. Take care, brothers. This common practice of using the Exodus to discuss the Christian life of faith. Like the Israelites, the Christian is delivered from bondage to sin, slavery, unable to rescue themselves, but graciously rescued. Like them, we are headed toward a land of promised rest. We must journey across the river in order to enter into our land of inheritance. The specific point that is relevant to the passage is that the journey they were on and we are now on includes testing in the wilderness. I have two paragraphs here (laughs) that are meant to prove that we are in a difficult wilderness presently. It seems somewhat comical to me that I need to give you two paragraphs to prove that we are in a hard place. But I will. Because I wrote them, and I want to use them. We are in the wilderness of sorrow and pain. It's often difficult and challenging. It is much more like the cold than the day. It is much more like the dark than the dawn. Today is testing. It is not the day of our rest. Every Christian is sure to be tested. You likely can think right now, if invited, you likely can think of professing Christians who have fallen away due to a hardship. This is a difficult wilderness we are in. Pastor Will thoughtfully, pastorally prayed for the Vincents. Monday morning as we got news that Craig and Peggy's oldest daughter, mother of three young children, the youngest of which is six months old. Husband is a pastor of a small church in Pennsylvania. Had died in a car accident during her morning commute. And the reality that we are living in a difficult wilderness is vivid. It's vivid. 
A.W. Pink writes this. Testing reveals the state of our heart. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man, but manifests. While all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along nicely, but are we? When the storm breaks, it's not that his people fail under it, but that our failure is made evident in it. I hope you see that. The order of the things is important. You see, the condition of your true faith isn't defined by how you do in trial. It is distinguished by how you do in trial. You don't become a people of faith because of trials. We are a people of faith because of Christ. But our condition in Christ is revealed, is manifest during trial. And Exodus is the example. Now, when he talks about the generation that will not see his rest, you understand the generation, right? It is the generation that was told they would not enter into the land of promise for 40 years. However, in the test, there were two, right? Caleb and Joshua. There were two. In the moment of test, their faith was manifest. They went into the land, they spy it out. Whew, this will be a difficult thing for us, but if God has promised, he is faithful. And they came back and reported such. However, ten spies come back and say, nope. Yes, we know what God has done, but we have no way of predicting what he'll do next. They didn't doubt what God could do. They doubted who God was. And so, they serve as an example of the unbelieving heart exposed by trial. How do you know if yours is an unbelieving heart? I mean, really, if I were to ask you to list your three biggest trials... You say, well, number one was the snow this morning. <clears throat> no, that's trivial. You would probably have something to list. But if I look at my life, my trials have not been necessarily catastrophic trials. So God, how do I know? Let me give you a practical example of how you're doing in trial. It is this. You're complaining. I don't know if I have an unbelieving heart. I just complain when things are hard. Complaining is a symptom of a much deeper spiritual problem. Why do we look at God, His proven holiness, and our present curse, and expect prosperity?
why do we go through this life with the assumption that ours is to prosper in this fallenness with these things that are of the fall? Our hearts are often ignorant of who God is. And we may be caught unprepared or unbelieving. This is exactly what the Lord diagnosed of Israel in verse 10. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Likewise, Isaiah 1.3, the ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people don't understand. It's remarkable, isn't it, that the people didn't know? It's remarkable. It's hard for us to sympathize, right? You think, if I saw the Red Sea divide in half just long enough that I could go through, and then the water crash back in? Or, or if I saw the firstborn of everything in Egypt die at night, except for those covered in the blood? If I saw the locusts or the frogs or the boils, if I saw the darkness, if I saw the hand of God work that way, I would never be susceptible to unbelief. It's hard for us to sympathize. They're interested, they're keenly aware of what God does. But sadly, not well versed in who God is. You see, sometimes, just to make it easier to comprehend, I've said, I think that as Christians, especially Western Christians, in the generation which we live, I think that it's a little easier for me to recognize the hand of God, but not always as convenient for me to know the face of God. Do you know the difference? Do you know the difference between the hand of God, what he does, and the face of God, what he's like? We may experience the blessings of God's hand as the rest of the world does. Reigns on the just and the unjust. They did not know God himself. Jesus says in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God. True identity, true perseverance does not come to us by hearing the things God does, but rather by knowing God. And how do we know God? Well, we've already seen that revealed in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God Look up to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. We are told then, if we are to truly know by the revelation of the sun, the radiance, the glow of God's face, then Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 tells us rightly, fix our thoughts on Jesus, our apostle, our high priest. Or chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation of Jesus Christ? 
So, in the wilderness, what is our hope that we'll survive? Let's say that the hardest testing is yet to come. How will we survive? Let's say you've already been through real hardship. Death. Betrayal. Accusation. Persecution. What if the next trials are magnified? Will we fall away in the wilderness? Is the church destined to repeat the failures of Israel? There's a lot of similarity. Rescue from bondage. Crossing the river on our way to a land. The journey through hardship. There's a lot of, similar, a lot of similarities. What's the difference? What's the difference? It is the radiance of the glory of God in the person Jesus Christ. So I would say this to you. Do not harden your heart to the way of salvation. First, because Jesus is faithful in testing. Jesus is faithful in testing. You see, Israel wasn't the last Israel to go through hardship in the wilderness. There was another Israel that went through hardship in the wilderness. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When we study the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, we see that his temptation correlates to the things that were hardships for the people of Israel in Exodus. Jesus, though he did not have food, did not complain against God. But rather said, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus refused to turn his heart away from God to other hopes, but rather said, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So if today you sit here and think, I may not survive the wilderness because Israel didn't, I would simply say to you, Christian church, you will survive the wilderness because Israel did. Jesus Christ, the true Israel of God, the faithful Son of God, survived. And your only hope to endure the wilderness and ultimately reach the rest of God is to be hidden in Christ. In Christ. He not only was faithful in testing... But he has already arrived at our glory. He's already there. A priest whose work is done, seated in glory at the right hand of God. So not only do we know that he did survive the wilderness test, he was faithful in it, but we know that he's already completed it and is now seated in glory. Though we often fail, he does not. In our exodus, our failures are swallowed up in his victory. 
Our faithlessness is engulfed in his obedience. Our unrighteousness is covered in his righteousness. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I'm living in the flesh, the life I'm living in the flesh. What life are you living in the flesh, brother or sister? It is not perfect. It is not flawless. Therefore, what is your hope? The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Will we make it through the desert life, safe across, to the promised land? We will. We will if ours is Christ. Apart from Christ, I I can find no evidence of hope that any moral, well-intentioned, soft-hearted sinner would have any hope of entering into God's rest if it were not for Christ. I, I can find no evidence that would indicate that there is hope anywhere but Christ. If it were not for Christ, we would hear the same terrible words, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. If it were not for Christ, With faith, beholding the face of God revealed in Christ. Not only the hand of God, but the face of God. It is impossible to always go astray in unbelief. So the key to the warning text is a distinction of title. You who share in a heavenly calling we are his house and he is a son faithful over the house we are his house and he is a son faithful over the house that is a word picture of union in Christ is the imperative in Christ look down to verse 14 Union with Christ is the point that the author, that the Spirit of God is making. Verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. A, there's a sanctified version of Christ less wilderness journey. There's a sanctified version. And we're probably a little bit susceptible to it, and I want to say a, a guarding word against it. There is this sanctified Christ less just less of it, not none of it, just less version of wilderness journey. It is to look at the rescue, to look at the provision, to see the blessing, 
and get into our wilderness and say, I won't repeat their mistake. I'll do better. And friend, your do better is eternal separation from God and everlasting hell from his, from, from his presence, from his glory. Your do better is inadequate. But it seems like there is pressure on the church to not repeat Israel's mistake based almost solely on your own gumption. And I want to be clear that if you think your wilderness faithfulness, sure, it starts with justification to be announced a free man from Egyptian bondage, but now it rests in your gumption, in your sensitive guilt that will avoid sin. I feel so bad when I sin, I just won't do it anymore. If your wilderness perseverance in its trial rests in your effort, that may seem like a sanctified version of Christian living, but it is Christ-less. Why? Why would God destine a salvation plan like that? Here's, here's, here's what I mean by like that, in case you've missed it. Why would God lead the people of Israel out of captivity, through the wilderness, put testing in front of them, and then see them fail, and then have a people who he leads out of bondage to sin, leaves them in the wilderness, but then decrees the impossibility for their failing. You understand, I hope you understand that God has decreed in the good news of Jesus Christ the impossibility of failing. Why? <laughs> we get a hint to it back in Exodus. You remember one of the times when the people failed they build that calf and God says okay that's it they're all done now and Moses comes to God and he pleads and what does he plead he pleads based on the testimony of God's name God's name he says you have said this if it doesn't happen, what does it say about you? He doesn't say, hey, those people really deserve better. He knows they don't deserve better. But he pleads based on the testimony of God himself. So what would happen to the testimony of God himself if the people who are bought by the blood of Christ could fail? We would fail. And his decreed salvation of sinners would be impossible to accomplish if the persevering faith depended on us. It would fail. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. We have been predestined according to the purpose of His will so that we might be to the praise of His glory. We're a royal priesthood, an inheritance of nations, and we cannot be shaken. Will the people of the risen Christ repeat the failing of the Exodus? Turn your Bibles to Psalm chapter 24. I'm sorry, 124. Psalm chapter 124. Psalm chapter 124, verse 1. If it had not been for the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up. When their anger was kindled against us, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowler. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. And if it were not that way, then history of the Exodus would certainly be ours to repeat. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do you hear his voice? John chapter 10, verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you don't believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The hard heart of unbelief is exposed by testing. Their unbelief proved that it was impossible to please God without faith in Jesus Christ. And then Christ has proved his people that they are a new creation who is not yet perfect, but by the covenant seal of his blood cannot be undone. We, who are the sheep of his pasture, will arrive safely in his eternal rest. He prayed just such a thing to the Father. One of the reoccurring themes of Hebrews is that Jesus is our faithful high priest. Listen to our priest's prayer in John 17. Jesus has just left the upper room, and he's walking to the garden. And he prays for us to the Father. He says, Father, I have manifest your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and I have kept your word. I'm praying now for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you've given to me. They are yours. All mine are yours, 
and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am glorified in them. I have guarded them, and not one of them will be lost. Today, if you are the sheep of his pasture, you hear his voice, and he prays to the Father, no matter what your wilderness brings, you will not be lost. Let's pray. Father, this promise is a promise of bad news. We are definitely in a wilderness, and the wilderness is unpleasant, it's grievous, it's unwelcome, it's the product of the fall, it's heavy, it's grim, and it causes a, a growing appetite, a longing, a hunger, and a thirst for a garden of eternal rest. Not to be cast away from your joy, but to be welcomed into your eternal rest. Father, the promise is not a promise that we should do better than they did. Somehow have enough Conviction to persevere. Father, thank you that you have not called us to figure it out. You have not called us to be set free from sin and then be responsible to give more effort. But you have hidden our life in its functional imperfections and shortcomings and disappointments, you've hidden our life in Christ. And as certainly as he survived the trial of the wilderness, and as certainly as he has already made it safely home, we are hidden in him, faithful in the wilderness, and destined without fail to be home. In Christ Jesus, glorious name, and to him be glory forever. Amen. Would you please stand with me? Let's sing.